Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on influenza. This is the fourth of the series of four. We welcome our two faculty, Dr. Charles Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at UC Irvine, where he is also the Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education and the Executive Director UC Irvine Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community at UC Irvine School of Medicine, and Dr. Robert H. Hopkins, Jr., Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences College of Medicine. The learning objectives of this podcast are, one, identify patients at high risk of influenza complications who would benefit most from antiviral treatment or prophylaxis, and two, discuss management of influenza in the pediatric population. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Welcome to this podcast series focused on the diagnosis and management of influenza. Uh, Today we have a very special episode, Populations at High Risk for Influenza. Children. So we're going to be talking about children and adolescents today. I'm Chuck Vega, and uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by an old friend, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Hopkins, Jr. Uh, he is a professor of internal medicine and pediatrics and director of the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, or UAMS, and that's located in Little Rock, Arkansas. He also serves as associate program director of the UAMS Internal Medicine Pediatrics Combined Residency and chief of adult medicine at Arkansas Children's Hospital. He is also the chair of the National Vaccine Advisory Committee. So welcome, Bob. You have a lot of titles and a lot of roles. Just doing what we can to help out, Chuck. Nice to be with you. <laughs> That's all we can do. Um, so our primary learning objective today is to identify patients with high risk of influenza complications who would benefit most from antiviral treatment or prophylaxis. Um, but uh, let's think about the, this group specifically, children and adolescents. Um, who in this group is at high risk of complications of influenza, Bob? Well, that's a great question, Chuck. Let's start with the easiest group. All of our children under age five years, and particularly those under two, are at high risk for flu-related complications. This risk is primarily attributed to an immature and developing immune system. The immune repertoire is the reason for the recommendation that we give our children under age nine, the first season that they're vaccinated, two doses of influenza vaccine to jumpstart the development of immune protection from influenza viruses. We should also consider the fact that many of these young children are in daycare, preschool or elementary school, and despite our better efforts to limit it, young kids are wonderful spreaders of droplets and mucus, which can carry influenza as well as a number of other respiratory pathogens. Continuing on the theme of kids with impaired immune response to influenza, All of our children who are immune suppressed by disease or medical treatment, childhood cancer patients, persons with inherited immune deficiencies, and children with autoimmune diseases who require immune suppressing medications, as well as any children requiring chronic systemic corticosteroids are at high risk for severe influenza because they have impaired ability for their immune system to recognize, respond effectively, and control influenza infections. Beyond these kids with immune suppression and cancer, we've got a large group of children who have chronic medical conditions. This this 
group of kids includes those with asthma, diabetes, heart disease, lung, liver, and kidney disease, and the kids who have neurodevelopmental disorders like cerebral palsy. They're all at risk for exacerbations of their chronic illness, hospitalization, and even death due to influenza infection. Much like adults, children with chronic medical illnesses are at high risk for exacerbations of chronic illness associated with influenza infection. And a group many don't think about are the small population of children who require chronic salicylate therapy, primarily aspirin. They're at risk of developing Rise syndrome and may even develop fulminant hepatic failure if they're unfortunate enough to get infected with influenza. And finally, we have to recognize that there are some racial and ethnic groups who, for reasons we don't completely understand, are at higher risk for influenza and its complications. This includes persons of Native American and Alaskan Native heritage. And although the data is not as clear for influenza as it is for COVID-19, we've got to remember that African Americans have suffered a excessive burden of disease from COVID-19 and may also be at higher risk for severe influenza. So, while there are a lot of healthy kids in our practices, a significant proportion of the children and adolescents we see every day are at high risk for influenza and complications from influenza infection. Those are great points, Bob. And yeah, I certainly see the, the effect in younger children. I, I think that um, we saw such a low um, incidence of uh, influenza this past flu season in 2020, 2021, in part, in, in one small part at least, I think because of school closures and just not having those nidus of infection with kids uh, sharing, um, uh, sharing the infection, uh, particularly in the younger elementary and preschool levels, uh, was a factor. And I'm, I'm very glad to have the kids back in school, uh, but I think that was a factor in such a historically low flu season this past year. Um, I also think it's really interesting to, to think about this very large group of individuals now considered at high risk for complications for influenza, which is the newest group. And that includes, as you mentioned, American Indians, Alaska Native. That's been there for a while on the CDC's list, but now uh, persons of Latinx descent um, and uh, black individuals as well. And I, I just wanna be clear that, you know, when I think about the, uh, the impact of infectious disease, say COVID or influenza in those populations, it's not necessarily a genetic predisposition or something um, with immune function that's necessarily the issue. It's uh, you know, greater rates of poverty, um, greater rates of chronic illness, uh, living in more uh, closely uh, crowded conditions, lack of access to healthcare. So it's a lot of social determinants that, that promote um, you know, higher risk of complications among uh, those racial and ethnic uh, minority groups. And kids, it's, it's a little bit harder to see um, because there's, you know, in terms of chronic conditions, say diabetes is not going to necessarily be very common in kids overall. But we do know that, um, you know, black children have higher risk for asthma, um, both, you know, and all those groups, American Indian, Alaska Native, um, black and Latinx, all have higher risk for obesity in childhood uh, compared with white children. So I wonder if that may be part of the factor that puts the, um, the kids specifically and adolescents in, in a higher risk group for complications in those racial and ethnic groups. Any comment on that? Oh, I think the social determinants are a critical factor here, Chuck. And, you know, we think about nutrition in these children. We think about mm -hmm. access to health care. Uh, we think about control of those chronic medical conditions. And I think obesity is a huge factor. Uh, and, you know, we also have to think about our changing climate. 
you know, you're going to have mm -hmm. more in the way of fires, and unfortunately, in your part of the country, um, and those fires, more particulate matter, more asthma exacerbations, more problems with chronic lung disease, chronic inflammation, all of those put a higher proportion of these kids uh, at risk. So lots of factors, lots of our kids that we can do a better job to protect. And, you know, on top of that, I think last year's low rates of influenza, although it resulted from a lot of our good public health measures, I think has put a lot of our parents in a position of saying, well, you know, influenza wasn't a big deal last year. We don't need to prioritize it. That really sets us up for a potential disaster. Oh, yeah. We'll get, we'll get back to that one. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I agree with you. And I, I do want to call out, it. you know, school closures was maybe part of it, but, uh, but it was mostly just wearing masks and being right. physically distant, washing hands. Um, you know, and, and, and seeing my kids in masks was, was a pretty remarkable achievement. I, they took to it much better than I thought they would. Um, and so I think it really has kept them protected so far. Hopefully we keep going. Um, because they're, it's, it's not just they're at risk for influenza. Kids um, actually have a, a different prevalence rate overall when we compare influenza A and B versus what we might see in adults and, and different consequences of those uh, different strains. Can you uh, explain that? Sure. You know, influenza B can cause influenza illness in people of any age, but appears to cause more illness in children. And while we generally think of influenza B as causing less severe illness, influenza B can cause very severe illness in young children, especially those with medical comorbidities like immune suppression, congenital heart disease, and neuromuscular disease. And, and so that's, yeah, it's a really good point. So influenza B, we think of it as a more mild infection, but not necessarily so in adults. And we do see a, a higher rate of influenza B overall in the past decade in the United States. That's right. And we, we don't want to see that this flu season. Uh, I agree that, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with the, with the upcoming flu season, 21, 22. Um, but the best, but we both know the best way to prevent severe flu season is through the vaccine. So should uh, children high risk for complications receive any particular vaccine, first of all? Well, I think the key point is we need to immunize all of our children who are six months of age and older against influenza. Any age appropriate vaccine can be used. Now, we do need to consider whether a kid aged under nine has previously received influenza vaccine, and if not, they need two doses. So we really need to be getting that first dose into them as early as possible in the season. We also have the option of using the live attenuated nasal vaccine. It's an attractive option for many of our kids who don't want to get a needle stick. Um, but we shouldn't use that nasal vaccine in our highly immune-suppressed kids or in our children who've got lung disease or asthma. So we have to keep in mind all of our flu vaccines going into this season are going to be quadrivalent. So we're going to have two B strains included in the vaccine as well as the H3N2 and the H1N1. But all of our kids six months of age and older need to be vaccinated. And if we vaccinate all the family members, we provide a ring of protection against the infection for those younger kids who can't be vaccinated. I'm curious as to what your cutoff is when you think about immune function and the use of the live attenuated vaccine. Because I would certainly understand in a, in a child undergoing chemotherapy, for example, you certainly want to avoid it. Or with a with a known um, condition that is uh, that suppresses the immune system as, as part of the disease process. But what about 
you know, a child, you know, taking low dose corticosteroids or, you know, where there's probably some moderate effect on immune function, would you try to avoid the live vaccine in that child as well? Or would you feel okay about giving it? I'd feel okay in that, in that child. Generally, I approach it as kids that are on moderate or high dose corticosteroids, kids that are on some of our uh, monoclonal antibody therapies, particularly the anti-CD20 drugs. Uh, those that are on chemotherapy or those that have severe immune deficiencies, we really want to stay away from the live attenuated vaccine. Of, of course, yeah, and getting any vaccine on board is generally, as long as you're staying within the safety rules, uh, is better than better than no vaccine um, all, almost you know, 99.99% of the time. Right. But I, I'll tell you, in my practice, I'm having a heck of a time uh, as I'm counseling patients and kids and adolescents about uh, the flu vaccine. There, I just don't see a ton of resistance, but I see a lot of just fatigue and yeah. people are dismissing the flu vaccine right now out of hand. We've talked about COVID vaccine four or five times now. And I think that uh, caregivers and adolescents are just tired of thinking about it and getting information about it. So when it comes to, oh, by the way, it's time for your flu vaccine now, whether they got a COVID-19 vaccine or not, it's just, I'm just getting flat, no. Um, yeah, I'm not, not interested. And I can I can tell it's just because they're they're tired of thinking about these issues. And there's probably some uh, background of, of concern regarding safety and interaction, even though I try to dispel that. So I don't know if that's what you've been seeing in your practice, but I'm having a really hard time this flu season getting flu vaccine on board, which is really a critical issue considering that nobody got the flu last flu season. It was incredibly rare to have flu and, and have that natural exposure. So immune levels can be assumed to be low in the community uh, broadly right now. We've got to vaccinate more folks. And I'm not, I, I, honestly, I'm not getting it done. Right. Uh, Bob, I don't know if that's your experience or if, any, if you can help me, yeah. please, that'd be great. Well, we're seeing, we're seeing some of that uh, in our area. You know, we had another double hit uh, this past spring and summer that you may not have seen on the West Coast. And that's that we had a lot of RSV illness right. in the summer. No, we and, had it too. You know, that has helped me a bit. You know, I don't like to think of RSV being a good thing. But that RSV incident this summer helped us to be able to emphasize to our families, particularly those with young kids, you know, hey, RSV is normally a wintertime illness. You know, we've seen RSV at a time where we don't normally expect it. We didn't see it last year because of all of those protection measures like masking, not flying around the country, you know, kids being at home for school as opposed to in school. And so we emphasize the fact that anything we can do to reduce these respiratory illnesses, influenza vaccination, COVID vaccination, masking up in the schools, all of those things are going to help reduce the impact of these respiratory illnesses in our children. We clearly have to make flu vaccination a norm in our society if we're going to be successful. I want all of my team members in the office on the same page, from the front desk clerk who may have a relationship with my patients and families at church or in the community, to my medical assistant, to my nurse. All of us have to be speaking the same speech and talking and walking the same walk. I want you protected like I want my family protected and my team protected. And that applies from six-month-olds to 12-year-olds. Absolutely. So, yeah, and I think that's, that's a great approach and making it team-based and making it personal certainly help. And I'll, I'll keep trying. I'm, I'm, I'm once again inspired. Um, back into the breach we go. Uh, so 
that said, we know that influenza vaccine is, is not close to 100% effective, and some kids are going to get influenza. How do we diagnose influenza during a COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, that's great. And I, I love the idea of co-testing. And I, I think that that's going to become a standard for this flu season as as flu rises up. And if it, if it reaches any kind of significant epidemiology in the U.S., uh, co-testing is going to be critically important. I, I also care for a lot of children and adults uh, with physical and developmental disabilities. Um, any advice on working with this population specifically for prevention with the vaccination or treatment with anti-influenza drugs? And uh, just to cover then, so we have as, as our options for therapy in uh, children, we have oseltamivir and zanamivir, um, and then and oseltamivir really can be used at any age, um, whereas baloxivir is limited uh, right now to the ages uh, 12 and up. Um, so yeah, so I think you covered that nicely. Um, what about using prophylaxis uh, for among children and adolescents? You mentioned that many of them are at high risk for complications of influenza. So is prophylaxis against influenza when a um, at close contact has active influenza? Is there any role for that in kids and uh, overall? Great points. Well, Bob, that's that's the time we have for this particular podcast. Um, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. You have a, a great patient-centered uh, perspective and knowledge uh, regarding uh, influenza as it pertains to children and adolescents. And I, I thought this talk was very clinically relevant.
Um, so thanks as well to our audience for listening uh, to, uh, to this presentation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out the other three podcasts in the series on influenza and high-risk populations. You can also check out an additional series of interactive videos covering influenza management, which are located on the Influenza Curriculum webpage on PrimeMed. Be well. To obtain your CME credit, please visit PrimeMed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you have listened to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on PrimeMed.com for claiming CME credit. Thank you.